Thank you for watching NTD Business coming up. Two journalists testified before Congress today on what they call a censorship industrial complex. What do they reveal? The CEO of Norfolk Southern in the hot seat. Senators grilled him over the toxic train derailment last month. What does he have to say for himself? JP Morgan sues a former senior banker over his ties to sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. What could it mean for a different lawsuit directed at JP Morgan? Sony takes action against Microsoft over worries the company is gaining control in the gaming industry. And President Biden releases his budget proposal today. He's planning on taxing the rich to cut the federal deficit. That and a bunch more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Don Ma here. Journalists Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger testified on the Twitter files to the House's Weaponization of Government Subcommittee today. Schellenberger called what had been uncovered in the files a censorship industrial complex. He's likening it to the military industrial complex that President Dwight Eisenhower warned about in his farewell speech. Eisenhower's fears were well-founded. Today, American taxpayers are unwittingly financing the growth and power of a censorship industrial complex run by America's scientific and technological elite, which endangers our liberties and democracy. Taibbi published the latest Twitter Files installment this morning. In one tweet, he said, who's in the censorship industrial complex? Twitter in 2020 helpfully compiled a list. He went on to list several organizations, including the National Endowment for Democracy, the Atlantic Council's DFR Lab, and Hamilton's 68 Creator, the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Taibbi also mentioned one organization at Stanford called the Virality Project, formerly known as Election Integrity Partnership, and claimed it censored speech about vaccine side effects alongside Twitter. We found just yesterday a tweet from um, the, the Virality Project at Stanford, which has partnered with a, new, a number of government agencies on Twitter, where they talked explicitly about um, censoring stories of true vaccine side effects um, and other true stories that they felt uh, encouraged hesitancy. In a tweet about the same subject today, Taibi said, quote, none of the leaders of this effort to police COVID speech had health expertise. Schellenberger said this is not just censorship, but also a disinformation campaign. This is very disturbing because what they're doing when they're putting these labels on there is they're actually also trying to discredit you. So it's not just, uh, it's a form of censorship, but it's also a, a disinformation campaign. During the hearing, subcommittee chair Republican Jim Jordan presented a narrative of clear coordination between the government, nonprofits that receive government funding, and Twitter in the run-up to the 2020 election, with a general focus on Hunter Biden's laptop. While ranking member Democrat Stacey Plaskett denied the premise, saying all the so-called Twitter files really showed was a discussion on content moderation. Onto Wall Street, indexes closed lower today, with bank stocks creating the biggest drag. The Dow fell 544 points or 1.7 percent. S&P lost 74 points or 1.9 percent. Nasdaq dropped 238 points or 2.1 percent. President Biden unveiled his budget proposal earlier today in Philadelphia. The proposal aims to reduce the federal deficit by nearly $3 trillion over the next decade. It focuses on four main areas. First is increasing taxes on the wealthy and corporations. He calls for a 25% minimum tax on households earning more than $100 million. 
The plan would also nearly double the capital gains tax rate. Around 650 billionaires in America. Now there's over 1,000. You know what the average tax they pay, federal tax? 3%. T-H-R-E-E, 3%. No billionaire should be paying a lower tax than somebody working as a school teacher or a firefighter or any of you in this room. Second is lowering costs for families. It proposes lowering health care and prescription drug costs. The budget invests $150 billion over a 10-year period to improve and expand Medicaid, home, and community-based programs. Third is the budget includes roughly $650 million for American manufacturing expansion. And finally, the budget proposes investing $4.5 billion in clean energy across the country. Joining me is Garrett Watson, Senior Policy Analyst at the Tax Foundation. Now, Garrett, let me get your initial thoughts. Was the proposal growth-oriented? What was your first reaction? So when I think about economic growth, a big theme that we focus on at the Tax Foundation is how is it best, how can we most efficiently raise revenue uh, for every dollar of tax that we, that we get? And unfortunately, generally speaking, this budget and budgets we've seen in the past from this administration have leaned more toward less efficient ways to raise revenue. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is a big focus on substantially raising tax burdens on uh, corporations through the corporate income tax, which we and, and many other economists have found to be one of the more inefficient ways to raise revenue, and increasingly re- uh, relying on a very small group of folks earning over $400,000 a year to fund trillions of dollars in new initiatives and spending. And that not only is that not very efficient, but it's also in some ways potentially not sustainable given both our uh, fiscal trajectory and uh, the ever-growing list of things that folks are looking to, uh, to support through uh, federal tax revenue. So a big part of this budget proposal is increasing taxes on the wealthy. But let me ask you, what is wrong with that? What's wrong with asking the more wealthy to pay a little more taxes and, as Biden says, pay their fair share? Right. So I, I think one trend or theme that we tend to see in these discussions and the rhetoric is any particular tax hike that we're talking about here seems pretty incremental, right? We think about raising the top rate, for example, on those earning over $400,000 from 37% to 39.6%. That seems uh, like a fairly incremental change. The challenge is when you add all these taxes up, where it becomes a substantial um, potential uh, that has the potential to deter uh, productive behavior. Uh, that's especially true when you look at things uh, in the context of this proposal, when you combine it with state and local taxes, for example, where according to our calculations, uh, uh, overall tax rates in uh, over about a half a dozen different states would exceed 50%, in some states closer to 55%. Uh, and that's just the average rate overall. We're not even talking about you know the tax cliffs and marginal tax rates that may well exceed that. And so I think you have to look at it holistically and look at all the tax rates combined. Overall, in this budget, we're looking at a bit over $4.5 trillion in gross tax hikes over the next 10 years, which, which overall match or exceed the tax hikes that were proposed by the president as part of his 2020 campaign. And uh, when we looked at it historically, that would be one of the largest uh, tax hikes on record going back to World War II. It would easily be within the top 10, I believe close to the top five. So the White House says this budget proposal could cut the deficit by $3 trillion over 10 years. In your view, view, is that a fair statement? 
So we haven't gone through all the uh, treasury revenue estimates that are in the budget right now. But this is very much, as we know, at the Tax Foundation, often an art and not a science in terms of estimating the revenue. And there, I think there is a high risk that if you stack all these tax hikes on top of one another, they're going to raise in combination a lot less than you think, especially if they were all done in isolation, right? Because uh, you can't, there's only so much you can do to tax the same income multiple times, um, or just uncertainty about where uh, the state of the economy is going. For example, if we try to raise taxes on capital gains, that's really, the amount of revenue you're going to gain really depends on how well the economy does. And of course, that's also determined in part by tax policy. So it's, uh, th there is some dynamic effect there, of course, and a lot of uncertainty about how much revenue you'll collect. And that, that's especially true of new proposals, right? I mean, no one really knows. I mean, we can try to guess, but no one really knows how much we would raise with a 25% minimum billionaire tax. I, I think there's reasons to be conservative and skeptical about the exact extent of that, of those numbers. Um, but, I, but I think more so than the specific numbers, of course, I think the, the president and the White House are trying to send the message that they are serious about deficit reduction, that they're, they don't want to put out a plan where the spending is way over the tax hikes that they're proposing. And I think that will play a part in that debate right now in the short term over the, the debt ceiling and, and what to do um, when, they're, when they're negotiating with Republicans in the House. All right, thank you very much, Garrett, for your insights today. It was a pleasure having you on. Great. Thanks so much. Have a good one. The robust job market could be starting to crack. Data from the Department of Labor found first-time claims for unemployment insurance jumped up 21,000 last week, the first week of March, to 211,000. That's the highest weekly total since late December. Still, the job market has held strong under eight rounds of interest rate hikes and amid recent layoffs in the tech, media and finance sectors. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell reiterated this week that the central bank will continue to hike its benchmark interest rate as long as necessary to tame inflation. Lawmakers grilled Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw today over his company's train derailment in East Palestine last month. The derailment unleashed, unleashed hazardous materials into the environment harming the residents. During the hearing, Shaw repeatedly apologized to the residents of East Palestine. He said it was his personal commitment to do whatever it takes to make things right. I want to begin today by expressing how deeply sorry I am for the impact this derailment has had on the residents of East Palestine and the surrounding communities. I've been to East Palestine many times over the past month. I've talked with the leaders, the business owners, the school officials, the clergy, and others throughout the community. They've shared their stories and their concerns about the health of their families and the future of the community they love. I am determined to make this right. But it seems like this did not placate angry lawmakers. Democrats accused Norfolk Southern of laying off important workers, neglecting maintenance, and spending billions on stock buybacks. Senator Ed Markey repeatedly asked Shaw if Norfolk Southern would compensate families for fallen property values. Shaw never directly answered the question, but he repeatedly said that he was committed to doing what's right. The right thing to do is to say, yes, we will. Senator, I'm committed to doing what's right for the community, and we're going to be there. As no, what, what's right for the community will then be balanced, which is what we can see from your stock buybacks, by what's right for Norfolk Southern. And that's going to be to sue, to fight, to resist full compensation for these families. 
Participants made it clear that it is safe currently to live in East Palestine. Both Alan Shaw and two EPA officials have been there themselves drinking the water as well. But because residents aren't fully convinced, the EPA is still working hard to make sure everything is 100% safe. Ohio Senator J.D. Vance brought up concerns over potentially hazardous materials still in the town. Right now, as we speak, there are piles of dirt accumulating in East Palestine, piles of dirt filled with toxic chemicals that haven't been moved out of the state in a week. What happens if it rains? What happens if the very toxic dirt that we just dug out of the ground begins to seep back into the ground? Waste is moving off site, even as recently as yesterday and today. Where is it going? Where is it going from this? Uh, to a number of facilities that are EPA approved, that have the capacity to receive the waste, that have contracts with Norfolk Southern, and that have gone through our due diligence and a compliance review. Senator J.D. Vance also brought up a conflict between him and fellow Republicans. Vance had earlier introduced the Railway Safety Act of 2023, which forces railroads to enhance and invest in railroad safety. Lawmakers on both sides support the bill, and President Biden even publicly praised it. But some Republicans are against it because they're concerned about unintended consequences. Senator Vance addressed their concerns at the hearing today a particular slice of people who seem to think that any public safety enhancements for the rail industry is somehow a violation of the free market. Well, if you look at this industry and what's happened in the last 30 years, that argument is a farce. This is an industry that enjoys special subsidies that almost no industry enjoys. We have a choice. Are we for big business and big government or are we for the people of East Palestine? It's a time for choosing. Let's make the right one. And get this, just hours before the hearing, another Norfolk Southern train derailed in Alabama. This is the fourth time in just over a month the train was not carrying hazardous materials. But we don't know yet what's the cause. And moving on, J.P. Morgan Chase is suing former executive James Edward Jess Staley. Staley was largely responsible for J.P. Morgan's 15-year financial relationship with disgraced financer Jeffrey Epstein. The U.S. Virgin Islands government filed a lawsuit against J.P. Morgan in December. It alleges the bank had a more than close-up view of Epstein's sex trafficking and ignored obvious red flags related to Epstein's accounts. Epstein was convicted of sex crimes in 2018 and was found dead while detained the following year. By suing suing Staley, J.P. Morgan brings its former executive into the court case as a defendant. The bank claims Staley favored his own and Epstein's personal interests, over the banks. If successful, J.P. Morgan's maneuver could make Staley financially responsible should the Virgin Islands win its lawsuit against J.P. Morgan. The bank has denied the allegations in the Virgin Islands complaint and has moved to dismiss the lawsuit. Meanwhile, an attorney for Staley did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Crypto-focused bank Silvergate Capital said yesterday it plans to wind down operations and voluntarily liquidate. This after it was hit with losses following the collapse of crypto exchange FTX. Ryan Chang reports. One of the main banks lending to the crypto industry says it is shutting down and liquidating. On Wednesday, Silvergate Capital cited recent industry and regulatory developments for winding down. Silvergate now finds itself the latest victim of the so-called crypto winter jitters in the digital asset industry after the implosion of one of the company's major customers, the exchange FTX, in November. 
The company said in a statement it would repay depositors as part of its liquidation plan. The collapse of FTX, its sister firm Alameda Research and arrest of their founder Sam Bankman-Fried for fraud and other crimes caused a run on deposits at Silvergate. Multiple partners severed ties with Silvergate last week after it warned about its viability and its sale last year of additional debt securities at a loss. Federal prosecutors in Washington are also investigating Silvergate and its links to FTX and Alameda Research. And Sony is concerned over the prospect of Microsoft owning the popular Call of Duty video game franchise. It sent a letter to a UK regulator saying the merger should be stopped. The games have earned over $31 billion in lifetime revenue. NTD Sean Marshall has more. Sony is worried about Microsoft's owning the hit video game Call of Duty after buying its maker Activision Blizzard for $69 billion. So worried that Sony submitted documents to the UK's Competition and Markets Authority, saying the merger should be blocked. Sony proposed ways in which Microsoft could hypothetically circumvent the proposed 10-year deal that Sony signed to continue joint distribution of Call of Duty with Microsoft. In my opinion, Sony should be absolutely terrified. Gaming streamer Jennifer Tan, who plays Call of Duty eight hours a day, thinks Microsoft is using minimal effort to fix the game. Microsoft is going to focus on microtransactions, we all know I love those, instead of the actual integrity of fixing the game. Fix your bugs, fix the crashing, fix loading spawns, fix your game before you start taking over other people's platforms. End of story. I'm terrified for them. Sony's worried about things such as releasing a buggier version of Call of Duty on the Sony PlayStation 4 and 5, taking too long to fix bugs on Sony's version, and not invest as much money or time into Call of Duty's multiplayer Sony experience. The Federal Trade Commission has filed a legal challenge against Microsoft's acquisition of Activision, saying the deal could enable Microsoft to suppress its competitors. Tan is worried about the overall future of Microsoft gaming experiences. Where are you investing in? Is it just another way to get your exclusive titles like Years of War, for example, which is a Microsoft exclusive title? Are you going to be moving that over to Sony now? Is that where we're going? Is it just another platform to get exclusives, or are you going to take Sony exclusives and get those onto Microsoft? And if so, are you going to keep the integrity of those games? Like, what is your end game here? The hostility's gotten to the point that Sony's CEO reportedly told Activision, I don't want a new Call of Duty deal. I just want to block your merger. That's according to the tweet by Activision's CCO, Sean Marshall, NTD News. And still to come after the break, car thieves going wild in the United States, stealing over 1 million vehicles last year, which states saw the biggest surge. And the largest home show in the United States showcases consumer innovations that can make people's lives easier. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. According to a new report, car theft in the United States is hovering a near 15-year high, with every month last year seeing more than 75,000 vehicles stolen. This is according to a report by nonprofit industry group National Insurance Crime Bureau. It says that the number of auto thefts nationwide surpassed 1 million for the first time since 2008. That's a 7% jump compared to 2001. 
Leading the nation in auto theft was California, followed by Texas and Washington state. The state that had the most dramatic surge in auto theft was Illinois, followed by Washington state and New York. The president of the insurance crime group said one problem is that the criminal justice system offers little deterrence for car thieves. Until the core issues are addressed, the group recommends car owners roll up their windows, remove their key, and lock their doors when they exit the vehicle. A lightning-fast heist at a car dealership, and the manager says he thinks it was an inside job. Let's take a look. Gone in 40 seconds. That's roughly how long the manager of a Kentucky dealership says it took a group of thieves to make off with six high-performance sports cars, four of which were driven right off the showroom floor. The manager says he believes the rip-roaring hot rod rip-off may have been an inside job as the suspects knew where to find the keys and how the security system worked. It takes 60 seconds before it starts alerting, you know, So they were gone 20 seconds before the alarm ever went off. Although the heist was quick and slick, netting the perps six Challenger Hellcats worth nearly 600 grand, five of the cars have reportedly already been recovered and at least one arrest made. It just proves it's not how you start, but how you finish that matters. And the largest business-to-business home show in the United States, called the Inspired Home Shows, concluded in Chicago this week. Let's take a look. No, this is not a toy. It's the world's first rideable carry-on luggage by Motobag. Kevin O'Donnell, founder of Motobag, came up with the idea after helping a family lugging a lot of baggage through JFK Airport years ago. Initially, yeah, we were just going to make a better way to travel, right? Because the airports could be miserable. But many of his clients bought the bag because of their light disabilities, such as arthritis and injury or asthma. The moto bag makes their travel much more manageable. You're more like James Bond and you got your little carry-on suitcase and you don't have to rely on anybody. You keep your independence. It just makes life so much easier and travel so much more fun like it's supposed to be. The bag is TSA, FAA and IATA compliant. It can be stowed away in the overhead bin. But one caveat, the bag comes at a hefty price tag of $1,495. Another convenient invention is called the Ringo bottle. Chris Place came up with the idea after taking a terrible group photo by placing a phone against a water bottle. This is a new kind of water bottle. Um, Every time we go out on a trip, we go to the gym, we go hiking, Um, We're always taking our water bottle with us and we always want a place to put our phones, take photos and record those memories. So we decided to combine the two using MagSafe. This product has yet to be made available on the market and the only way you can get the Ringo bottle is by pledging an amount to support the project through the Kickstarter website. Dash Products is known for its mini appliances which make cooking fun. Claiborne Elder, director of content with Dash, showed us some of its mini products. We have a lot of these mini waffle makers are sort of what put us on the map. And here we have some of the shapes that they come in. There's a snowman. These are sort of the holiday ones. And this is my favorite one. This is an Easter egg, which you can take. I have a five-year-old son. And you can decorate all of this with different colored batters. And it makes a little painted Easter egg waffle, which is really cute. This is our mini rice cooker, which I love because for me, I don't want to cook a big pot of rice. Plus, it's better when it's fresh. So this just cooks enough rice for me and maybe one other person, which is great, and keeps it warm for you. 
cooks it perfectly. 1,600 exhibitors from 40 countries participated in the show. The exhibits included home appliances, home decorations, and housewares. The show was also attended by retailers worldwide who came to shop for products. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. A new musical about the life and career of Frank Sinatra will open in Birmingham, England later this year. Sinatra the Musical will debut on September 23rd. The story depicts Sinatra's rise to fame to become the most popular singer in the United States. The performance also explores the pressure of high expectations and the pitfalls of vice. Tony Award winner Joe DiPietro wrote the script for the upcoming musical. Sinatra's voice won him fans around the world. My Way and Strangers in the Night were just a couple of the singer's classics. Sinatra died in 1998. Sinatra the musical will run until October 28th. And that's all today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. You can follow me on Twitter too. And that's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.